0: Hello, and welcome to Carmel Presbyterian Church's podcast channel. Open up a Bible or just listen in. We hope this week's message is a blessing to you. Here we are. It's finally here, the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. Woo! Y'all are pumped, right? Well, technically it's on Tuesday, but who cares about that, right? The 31st is is the actual 500th anniversary, but today is Reformation Sunday, and that is a huge deal for many people who love to study and talk about theology. Unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, my wife is not one of those people. In fact, Reformation Sunday has been usurped by something in the Barnes household It is Lalia's birthday today. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's my wife. I love you, you're the best mom, my best friend. So we were talking and I think the last time that I preached was on Mother's Day and I got her a um, present of a sermon and she liked it so much that I thought I would do the same thing for her birthday, so you're welcome sweetie. Um, So for the past seven weeks, Pastor Rick has taken us on a journey through time. He wishes that he could be here to wrap up the series, but he's been quite sick for a solid week now. In fact, in 13 years, this is only the second Sunday that he's missed for any other reason besides vacation. And it's an impressive run for sure, but we are praying for him to rebound quickly so that he can actually um, celebrate and rest on his vacation next week. So it's his actual vacation next week. So I've been called in on this Family Sunday to pitch the ninth inning. But before I do, I wanna take us through some of the highlights of the game thus far. In case you didn't know, World Series is going on, so I needed to throw one baseball analogy in there. Um, This whole thing, this reformation, began for a variety of reasons. But a major catalyst was Martin Luther's burning desire to know how he could be made right before God. He was terrified that he would never be able to acknowledge, to find, and then confess all of his sins. So then that led to him being worried about where he would end up when he died. And his personal pursuit led to some of the groundbreaking theological truths, and the Reformation is basically marked by these truths, which we refer to as the five solas. So we have sola scriptura, by scripture alone, sola fide, by faith alone, sola gratia, by grace alone, solus Christus, through Christ alone, and soli Deo gloria, glory to God alone. So that's all in Latin, just so you know, high school students, Latin, okay? It's the romantic language. I like guess what, forget it. Uh, so first we have this sola scriptura. Scripture alone means that the Bible is our ultimate authority for faith and life. It is the word of God and it takes priority. Specifically, Martin Luther contrasted this with the official Catholic belief that both the scriptures and tradition are authoritative. Luther had issue with the Catholic church, meaning the church or the church councils, being the authoritative interpretation of the scriptures. And while we trust scholars, pastors, professors, and teachers to help us interpret the Bible, we know that God is the one who opens our eyes through the Holy Spirit and speaks to us through the Bible. As Christians, we all share beliefs in creeds and confessions, but even those are second in importance to scripture. Second, we have sola fide. Faith alone means that Jesus paid it all. There is no more left to be paid. There is no salvation left to be earned. Our justification, our salvation, and ultimately our entry into eternal life is based solely on our faith in Jesus Christ. Pastor Rick told us that most other belief systems say do, whereas Christianity says your salvation is done. Third, sola gratia. Grace alone means that our salvation is a gift from God and no one can earn it. In Ephesians 2 we read, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. But right before this, Paul writes in verse 1, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins. Scripture teaches us that we are dead in our sins. Can dead people save themselves? None of us, could have ever earned any part of our rescue, our forgiveness, our justification, or our salvation. Grace alone, this idea of grace alone is such a liberating idea because we all have this incessant need to perform, this pressure to perform. We want to earn our grades. We want to earn our way into the college of our choice. We want to get that job. We want to earn good health, relationship status, and we even want to earn our own salvation. Yet God protects us from our pride and entitlement by giving us a free gift that we do not deserve so that we might actually know that we are loved and worth dying for simply because our creator says so. And the more we know that, the more that we know we are adored, then the more we actually want to change and be like Christ. Fourth, Solus Christus. Christ alone means that we believe that Jesus was the only one who could save us and did save us. Because Jesus is the Son of God who is divine, perfect, part of the Trinity along with the Father and the Holy Spirit, he's eternal, worthy of worship, and the creator and sustainer of all things. But not only does it have everything to do with who Jesus is, it also has everything to do with what Jesus did. He lived a perfect life, and in his death, he took our sins upon him and then experienced the punishment that we deserved in our place. He suffered so that we would not have to, and he substituted himself for us and died in our place. And then on the third day, he conquered death for himself and for us. Jesus earned it all, and he gave it all, and therefore, we say, Christ alone. And the fifth and final sola is soli deo gloria, God's glory alone. This means that all of this depends on God's love, grace, and mercy. Everything in this world that is good points back to the glory and generosity of God. Anything that you or I do that is good is a gift from God, and he deserves the credit and praise. And then ultimately... All of eternity will be spent giving God the glory that he is due. Now, will you allow me to try an illustration with you all? Yeah? I need your permission first. Okay. Now, I am the king of poking holes in analogies, so I'm asking you not to poke holes in mine, okay? Um, I'm hoping that this will help explain why these points, these five solas, are so. Vital for us understanding what it means to be a Christian. So there's these four scenarios that we're going to explore first Imagine I hire you to work at my house for one hour cleaning up my yard You agree to certain tasks like sweeping up our walkways and raking and picking up some sticks And I agree to pay you $20 when your hour is complete When all is said and done you've finished everything That was expected of you and I pay you your $20. And you depart knowing that you earned that money and that the transaction was fair. Second, imagine again that I hire you to work at my house for one hour cleaning up my yard. You agree to certain tasks like sweeping off my walkways, raking and picking up branches and sticks, and I agree to pay you $20 when your hour is complete. When all is said and done, you have finished some of what is expected of you, but I saw you. You took a 15-minute break to check your Facebook, and I also saw you cutting some corners. Instead of raking the leaves, you blew them into my neighbor's yard, who's already upset with me. But nonetheless, I decide to pay you $20. You depart knowing that you didn't really earn it, but you're pleased to have gotten away with it, and now you can buy some lunch at Bruno's. (laughs) So these first two scenarios speak to a transactional relationship. If we view our relationship with God as such, then we will never measure up. We will never earn enough. We won't always hold up our end of the relationship, and we will actually get frustrated when God seemingly doesn't hold up his end. I did this for you, God, now you owe me this is never a good place to be. Third scenario, imagine I am standing up front speaking to you all and I say, who wants $20, come and get it? Seriously, who wants $20, come and get it? Who wants $20, come and get it? Come on, there you go, come on. All right, wait, wait, wait. Tell everyone your name. Wait, is this on? No. <laughs> What's your name? Corey. Corey. Okay. Corey, did you earn that money? Yes. Yeah. You did? <laughs> did I just give that to you for free? No. No. <laughs> All right. I didn't give it to me value bucks. Oh, okay. What are you gonna do with that twenty no. dollars? What's that? Nothing? Okay. All right, thank you. Go, you, it, you can take it. Ask him what, you're on. what are you going to spend it on? Mommy. Mommy? Wow, all right. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Now, did he earn that money? No. Not really. It was a gift from me but I would argue that he actually still has reason to boast. He was the first one to come up here. He was the smartest and the most bold. (laughs) The gift was free, but he played a part and will at least partially think that he earned some of it. He deserved some of it. Finally, and this is what grace alone really means to me, Will Deanna Tovar de la Vega please stand up? Please stand up, Deanna. Deanna, will you check in your black bag in the zipped pocket? Oh, just the pocket in your black bag. you doing magic now? Yeah. In the pocket, inside. Oh, mm-hmm. inside. No, not this. That's not it. It's in there. This is not working as I expected. This is from Amon Jordan. What? Is this? what? It's right on the front, Deanna. Okay, here's the mic. Did did you earn that money? Kind of, because I had to dig for it. No, <laughs> no, I did not. Okay, I did not all right. Earn it. That was a free Somebody gift, right? Somebody slipped it in my bag. Yeah, right. Yeah. Someone slipped it in the bag. Yes. All right. What are you gonna do with that money? everyone I'm wants to know. I'm gonna give it back to you. No, no, that's your money. That's for you. Okay. I'm yeah. Gonna put all right. It in the Thank you, Diana. <laughs> so, that is really what grace is like. Okay. Grace is unfair. God makes a huge deposit into our account, and it just shows up there. Nobody deserves it. But God still decides to extend it our way. And the more that we understand this free gift of grace alone through faith alone, by Christ alone, then we will more willingly give all of the glory to God alone. Plus, knowing that it was freely given to us, will enable us to give it away more freely to other people. Because Deanna did not work for that money, as she said, I would think she's more likely to place it in the offering plate. She already said that. Or maybe donate it to the fire fund. Or fill an Operation Christmas Child box. There's no pressure. It's your money. You can do whatever you uh, want. Yeah, no Bruno. So there you have it. The main points of the Reformation in a nutshell. It's important to... Scripture's the one that teaches this. Scripture teaches us that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And most of this should have sounded quite familiar to you. When your senior pastor gets sick and you have to step in on your wife's birthday weekend, (laughs) then it's absolutely your prerogative to kind of just revisit everything that he's said for the past seven weeks. So that was a summary so far. And after all that repetition, This helps you remember something that Pastor Rick wanted us to remember. Correct content, which leads to an even deeper conviction, thus enhancing your level of commitment and ultimately resulting in significant heart and behavior change. All of these main points have significant theological ramifications, but much of the Reformation was actually the result of practical concerns. The Reformers helped set the table for you and I so that we might have a richer and deeper faith. They removed some obstacles for us so that we could have more direct access to God, and that's where we're going this morning. Please open up your pew Bibles, your apps to Hebrews chapter 4. I didn't put the page number up there. This is something that we do with our students so that they get used to opening the Bible and finding it. Hebrews is towards the back, all the way at the end almost. 10.03. There we go. I don't have $20 left. I'm sorry. (laughs) All right, so we're in Hebrews chapter 4, beginning in verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This book is the living and active word of God, and we have it at our fingertips all day, every day. We don't need someone to read it for us or to explain every single detail. This is God directly speaking to us. That's a game changer. It's a life changer. Before the Reformation and before the printing press, the Bible was in the possession of a select few in select languages. And this allowed the exclusive, this exclusive group of individuals to be the ultimate authorities on the interpretation of scripture. But as Luther and the reformers knew, the Bible needed to be in the hands of the people so that they could not only study it for themselves, but this I think is really important, but also to give new perspectives, like from a female point of view or through the eyes of a peasant. Seriously, think about this. The story of the bleeding woman who touched Jesus' cloak was being taught by unmarried celibate men, right? Or when Jesus said, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God, that scripture was being interpreted by the wealthiest and most powerful people in society. The reformers were frustrated with the Roman Catholic priests, bishops, and popes acting like the middlemen between God and the people. Not only did this put an unnecessary hurdle between God and his family, this power started to corrupt some of the Roman Catholic leaders, as they began selling indulgences. They were actually selling forgiveness and charging a price for the reduction of punishment and penance. But we don't need a middleman. Jesus is our great high priest. We have an all-access VIP pass to the throne room of God. Take a moment to let that sink in. We have a direct line of communication. We're invited into the king's court. We have the ear of the creator of the heavens and the earth. We speak and he listens. For centuries, the Roman Catholic Church attempted to put priests between everyday Christians and Jesus. And this practice, it didn't come out of nowhere. There's biblical precedence for it. It began with the Israelites and the descendants of Aaron who acted as priests on behalf of the Jews. God instituted this paradigm, but he shifted it with the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We now have a perfect high priest who not only lived a perfect life, but who also experienced the temptations, sufferings, joys, and this is one of the hardest things in life, the occasional monotony of human life. He sympathizes, even empathizes with us. He is compassionate and slow to anger, and his sacrifice was once and for all. It is finished. The high priest for the Jews enters yearly into the Holy of Holies in the temple on Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement. In that place, God had his earthly dwelling, and the priest would offer sacrifices in order to atone for the sins of the Jewish people. Now there's this legend, and it's not substantiated by scholars, that says the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies with a rope tied around his waist or his ankle. And as the story goes, if the priest had not been properly sanctified or cleansed, then he would instantly drop dead. At that point, the men on the other side of the rope would drag him out so that they didn't need to go in too and risk dying due to the fact that they were bringing in sin into such a holy place. And we no longer have such concerns because the moment Jesus died, the temple veil tore from top to bottom and God extended VIP status to all who believed in Christ. And Jesus is seated on the right hand with the Father, constantly making petitions for us and inviting us into an unashamed relationship with God. Most of you know the story of the two lost sons, or it's commonly called the parable, the prodigal son. There's this beautiful picture of the father running out to welcome home his tattered, ashamed, and broken son. The father embraces him and prepares a feast of celebration. This picture of the father reminds me of a beautiful story. At about the time of the Reformation, there was a woman in a small town who gained fame because it was believed that she could speak directly to God. Word about her spread to some of the Christian authorities, and so they sent a priest to go and investigate. The priest met with the woman and decided to put her to the test. He said, if you really can communicate with God, then I want you to ask him something for me. I want you to ask him what I confessed most recently. The woman was shocked, but she agreed. A few days later, the priest got word that the woman claimed to have had a conversation with Jesus. He hastily went to visit her, and upon his arrival, the woman told him, Father, I asked the question of Christ that you wanted me to, and I got an answer. And the priest leaned in with anticipation. And what did Jesus say? The woman replied, When I asked Jesus what you most recently confessed, he responded with love in his eyes and the words, I don't remember. I think we Protestants have done a great job of considering this aspect of God. Our Heavenly Father is so kind, so forgiving, loving, and gracious. His mercy knows no bounds. And I think these are essential for us to know in order to have a relationship with him. However, Our passage this morning tells us that we are naked and exposed before God. Scripture exposes us. The Holy Spirit convicts us. We realize our sin and we are heartbroken. And we must confess and repent. But I think we need some help with this. As I sat thinking, praying, and preparing this sermon, I was at my in-law's house in Oxnard. They are Coptic Orthodox Christians, Egyptian Orthodox Christians. I was raised Roman Catholic, and I stand here before you as a Protestant pastor. Go figure. But I am convinced that the Reformation was the work of God, and that the things that we have learned from it are fundamental truths of the Christian faith. In fact, I so strongly believe this that I could not bring myself to go through a simple ritual in which I would essentially convert to orthodoxy for my wedding. And this was extremely difficult for Lolly and I. Her family is extremely connected to their church. She has relatives who are priests and deacons. Her parents helped actually plant the Coptic church in Oxnard. And my decision, and ultimately our decision, led to a really bumpy time leading up to our wedding. And some would not or could not attend our ceremony because I had not converted. And considering Orthodox believe that a wedding is a sacrament, uh, Lalia was excommunicated from the church for marrying a Protestant. And it was one of the most difficult times of our lives. This is the start of our marriage. Yet through it all, her family and I have had a very real mutual respect for each other. We've had open dialogue and we try to celebrate our similarities and in the past, I've sent some work that I do with high school students to their fa- her family's priests and they try to uh, adapt them to their context and use them. Our premarital counseling was done by a wonderful Coptic priest named Abuna Boulas. I even read this sermon on the Reformation to my in-laws beforehand, which is not a very comfortable thing to do just if you know about the Reformation and reading it to Orthodox or Catholic. Okay. Okay. Uh, <laughs> But my father-in-law said it was okay. And he even said he wants us all to pray. He wants us to pray specifically for the cops in Egypt as something um, has been going on that our news doesn't report. The fanatics have just been murdering priests in the street and putting the, the sign of the cross on their forehead and they've been shutting down their churches. So he covets your prayers and that's what's going on in their neck of the woods. As Protestants, I believe that we could learn a great deal from our Catholic and Orthodox brothers and sisters. Their reverence for God and his holiness are humbling. There is beauty in their ancient liturgy. They constantly remember the martyrs and the the people who established our faith. Their worship is experiential and it, it always revolves around the communion table and they take confession seriously. They truly understand that when we are in the presence of God, we are exposed. In fact, I think this is one area in which we would do well to learn from them. The Reformation began with a man, Martin Luther, fully understanding the holiness and righteousness of God. Luther knew that he could never measure up, and he knew that Christ had done it all. But this did not stop Luther from recognizing the need to confess and repent. In fact, he realized that we should confess and repent all the more so as not to cheapen the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. James 5.16 says, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working been in the church for a long time, prayed for a lot of people. This verse is constantly quoted when we get together to pray. They forget one part of it, that first line. I never hear anyone quote that. Confess your sins to one another and then pray for healing. I want to end this morning with a challenge to us all. Perhaps my favorite idea that was reclaimed during the Reformation is this idea of the priesthood of all believers. We have a great high priest who rescued us and did it all. We owe him our lives and we are called to lay down our lives and follow him by ministering to one another and to the world. We are all priests gifted in various ways for the specific purpose of edifying the church. But do we really take that seriously? If we are saying that we no longer need middlemen then are we fulfilling their function for one another? Are we in rich, vulnerable, and authentic community in which we not only pray for one another, but actually confess our sins? And do we hold each other accountable all the while extending grace, mercy, and compassion? So as we remember the Reformation, let us remember how God is still reforming and sanctifying his bride. His work is not done. We can always be better. But my prayer is that Carmel Presbyterian Church will be known as a body of believers who knows that it is grace alone, but that grace cost the life of our Savior. We didn't earn it, but it cost more than we could possibly ever comprehend. How are we using our VIP status? Are we just excited to be part of some exclusive club? Are we boastful and self-serving? Here's my suggestion. Use your VIP status to get other people in the door. Get their names on the list. After all, the bigger the party, the better.